anytime you're trying to do something new and genuinely useful, you can't get there just by snapping your fingers. You get there by experimenting thoughtfully and experiencing many failures along the way. So bottom line, I'm interested in failure because I'm interested in learning. I'm interested in learning because I'm interested in effectiveness in a changing world. People won't change unless they're given a reason and need to change. And you end up with compliance at, at best rather than commitments. And I am biased, as you rightly say. <laughs> uh, but if you want to go through organizational change, you have to have some form of coaching, some form of support to help the people not only understand your reasons for change, but understand their reasons for changing as well and be able to feel some sort of ownership in the solution. Welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast hosted by Andy Lapata, the show where Andy and his guests explore the many ways in which relationships impact business decisions, make leaders' jobs easier, and help you to progress your career. Hello and welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast. I'm Andy Lapata. Thank you very much for joining me. My guest today has the wonderful title I have to dig into of being a constructivist psychologist and coach. And he's someone who spent a quarter of a century working in change management, personal development and coaching. He's the author of six books and collections of papers, including the workbook, Putting the Eye into Change. And that's what I want to talk to him about today. Change is a topic that comes up a lot on the Connected Leadership Podcast, how we manage change, how we nurture our relationships through change, how we uh, empower and motivate and keep on side teams through changing organizations. And my guest has actually mapped out that journey from an individual's perspective. He's looked at emotionally, psychologically, what people go through when they're faced with any major change in their lives. And I think it's really important that we understand where we are at and where other people are at when change faces us so that we can then manage the conversations more effectively. So that's why I've invited John onto the call, uh, John Fisher, who has actually got a curve named after him, the Fisher Curve. And we are going to dig into that as well. So, John, welcome to the Connected Leadership Podcast. The first thing I have to ask you is what is a constructivist psychologist? Yeah, and thank you very much for having me, Andy. A constructivist psychologist is really somebody who uh, looks at the world through the other person's eyes. So we follow a philosophy first brought in by a guy called George Kelly, uh, an American psychologist operating mid-last century. Uh, and it's about for me to interact more efficiently with you, I need to understand how you see the world and how you then interact with it. Well, that goes to the heart of a lot of what we talk about on the Connected Leadership podcast and a lot of what I share as well. I've been doing quite a lot of work recently looking at conflict resolution that's come out of both podcast episodes and mentoring sessions and questions coming up in training sessions as well. And when we look at conflict, it's all about seeing things from the other person's perspective. We get so embedded into the injustices we see or how we feel about something 
And when both parties are in that space, then you can't resolve the conflict. So um, <laughs> it's a very interesting area. And that makes sense in terms of the curve that you've created, the understanding the journey people are on when they go through change mm. and why it's so important to understand where they're at, isn't it? So, so let, let's dig into that. First of all, how do you end up with a curve being named after you? <laughs> how did it come about? Yeah, uh, I, I suppose interesting story. Some few years ago now, I was a volunteer counsellor for a couple of counselling charities and started to get a bit paranoid, I suppose, best way to describe it. In People would come for the first session, we'd have a really good conversation, good chat, uh, and they would make some big decisions and go away on a high, having booked the following week to come back and then not turn up. So I started thinking about this theory of second no-show, um, blaming myself, thinking it was me that just wasn't very good or whatever, and talked to colleagues and they said, no, we all have it, it happens all the time. And I think one of the tipping points, I was talking to one person and they said, oh, my sister came to see you, um, she thought you were really good and really enjoyed it. And I'm sitting there going, thinking, oh, great, why didn't she come back then? Uh, and that then led into really linking Elizabeth Kubler-Ross's bereavement curve onto change and individual change and how we as an individual see that change. And that then led me into thinking about it's about the size of the impact on me as an individual and it's about the implications for my sense of identity. Is that who I thought I was? Uh, and that then ended up with, with the curve that is a curve because it just seems to fit that time sort of motion, everything. <laughs> so you're really looking at, instead of going back to how you define constructivist psychology, instead of thinking they're not valuing what I'm doing by not turning up. You started by understanding what was happening in their lives and why people weren't coming, turning up from their own perspective. Mm. And that led you to sort of look at the change they were going through and the impact on them. When you say the bereavement curve, is that the one that talks about the different stages of grief? It is. Yeah. And I recognise that any change is a loss. So bereavement is a loss on a fairly large scale but any change is a loss on a sliding scale from almost nothing to massive if I've lost my job and it's that sense of impact then from there and I suppose for me it's about how they make the change personal for them so it's their change their meaning their understanding not mine so let's walk through the curve, because I think that will, will make it clear to everyone. And I should just say at this point, there's a lot of stages on it. There's a lot of data on it. So we will put a link to it in the show notes so that people can, can see it, or, or I'll, I'll post it on social media to accompany this episode so that people can look at it as well. But what I suggest we do is let's walk through it maybe two or three stages at a time hmm. so that people can 
picture them in their head rather than the whole mass of information. Imagine it's quite hard to do just audibly. So, yeah. so where do we start when change comes up? And, you know, we can be talking about, as you say, it could be a change in the way we do things work. It could be a merger and, you know, working under a different brand. We've talked about that on the podcast. It could be losing your job. It could be different people we have to work with. It could be a range of different things, different bosses. What are, what are the first stages? That, you know, how does that impact an individual? Mm. The first stages are a little bit around that change is coming. Is it going to be good for me, bad for me? Have I been here before? Can I cope with the change itself? So I call the first couple of stages really anxiety, just around that can I cope, how will I cope? And then there's also that little bit, though, of a this might be really good for me, I can see a positive future, or it might be a little bit around, thank goodness something's changing, this is just getting a bit boring, or these bits don't work really well. So it's just that little bit of anticipation before we then start going into the downward trend of the curve that looks at that impact on ourselves and the impact on me. Uh, I think because anybody can change, but for that change to be successful, they need to first change how they think about themselves. Okay, even in that small part, there's quite a lot I want to unpack there. So the first thing is this stage of anxiety and anticipation that you're talking about. When we're looking at workplace changes, and I talked about merger and acquisition, and that's probably quite a good example. Mm. Um change creates uncertainty and that uncertainty leads to the anxiety or the anticipation depend on your mindset your outlook but also the information that's fed to you yeah so so how important is that the way that that leaders handle information at an early stage particularly if there's only so much they can say that can manage how people respond and where they are on the curve Really good question, Andy, and I think it links in really with you can never over-communicate during times of change. No matter how much you say, it won't be enough. And one of the other ironies there is the communication itself is not what I say, it's what you hear, and it's the sort of interpretation you place on that message. So. It's about being as clear as you can be on the reasons for change, the motivations, the drivers for change. But it's also about recognizing what was successful, what worked in the past and giving a clear vision and then route map to the future to allow people to get some perspective on that timeline of the change to help them navigate it. The other thing that you said at the end of your last answer that really struck me, it sort of came out of the blue a little bit. I, I, I say I wasn't expecting it, but it makes perfect sense. And it's something that we've, again, talked about often on the Connected Leadership Podcast, is you can't expect to react to change until you change yourself and your mindset. Can you explain a little bit more about where you're coming from when you say that? 
Yeah, yeah, Koskan Andy. And that's really, I suppose, goes to the root of the curve. And it's about if we want to successfully change in a big, major, impactful way, then that will have an impact on our sense of identity. Because a part of my belief is that we tend to approach situations based on our past experiences of similar events and act as if that's true. And that's then either confirmed or not through experience. So if we've been in a situation before that's been bad when changes happened, we're more likely to resist, we're more likely, but we're then also more likely to go into a bit of self-blame when the change is forced on us. So we've got to recognise that we are effectively not the victims of our past So our past experiences do not dictate who we are today and we can make different decisions and change how we perceive things. So we've got to change that self-perception to then become more effective if we have to. So, I mean, I know that given the fact that you are a coach yourself, that you'll probably have a predictable answer to this question, but what you've just said begs the question, how important is coaching and mentoring in helping people through that mindset shift if an organisation wants to support people through change? The trite answer is fundamental. People won't change unless they're given a reason and need to change and you end up with compliance at, at best rather than commitment. And I am biased, as you rightly say, okay. uh, but If you want to go through organisational change, you have to have some form of coaching, some form of support to help the people not only understand your reasons for change, but understand their reasons for changing as well and be able to feel some sort of ownership in the solution. So we've got what I've called the uncertainty stage. You know, you talked about the anxiety and the anticipation. What comes next? What comes next really is then that sense of impact and the size and scope of the impact. So we've got, um, I call them fear, threat, and then guilt as we go down. So fear is, I think it's going to be a small impact on my sense of identity. So might be having to change desks, might be having to change rooms, might be having to slightly change roles, but it's not going to be that big because I've been doing it for a long time, etc. To then maybe as you get deeper in, realise it's a bigger and bigger change. In mergers, you've got to learn new cultures. You've got to learn different ways of doing it, different practices, processes and policies that then maybe tap into that. I've not been in school in 10, 20, 30 years. I don't want to have to learn a totally new way of doing things. Will I be able to cope? I should be better than this. I should be more adaptable. I'm experienced. Why can't I change quickly or understand it as the guilt concept? So they're the ones that take us deeper into our self-recrimination, into our self-doubt. So really what we're talking about here is uh, obviously we're on a downward part of the curve uh, with fear, threat and guilt. But this is where imposter syndrome comes into play quite a lot, I would assume. 
Uh, and that can have a big effect, especially down towards the bottom, is you suddenly feel you're an imposter. So merger, your M&A sort of work that you've done on podcasts. Uh, usually one company sort of educates everybody on their discipline, their philosophy, their style of how to do things. And if that's contrary to yours, if it's a new role and you're asked to be a servant leader, let's say, or you're asked to be transformative and you've worked in a very transactional industry, that total change of mindset can be quite threatening and can be quite challenging and hence give you a lot more sleepless nights. And people don't necessarily realize that what you're asking them to do is to change what they do, not who they are. And they think they've got to change who they are. I've, that's such an important point. Uh, uh, and, you know, really understanding how it lands for people uh, and their identity and how they see themselves. Mm-hmm. Obviously, the way we're talking at the moment, we're, in my mind, I'm picturing quite a steep slope down, but that's not going to be the same for everyone. You're mm. going to have people that I imagine almost bypass this section and yep. embrace change. They they are the anticipation people. They see the opportunity in change. So yeah. how snugly does this curve fit as a general overview and how big are the variations within? Are people? Is it just flatter for some people? Are they jumping a section? How does that yep. look? And I think that's a really good point and really good thing to bring out, Andy, because while it's shown as a curve with stages, it is totally dependent on the individual. And if somebody thinks this is going to be great, I can see how I can make this work, they may skip most of the stages, if not all of the stages, and just have a really shallow curve with just a couple of niggles as they go through, but nothing that derails them. Whereas other people, and especially people who maybe do suffer from imposter syndrome already, will have quite a steep curve because they won't know what to do, how to cope and how to manage. So it is totally unique and dependent on the individual. And maybe one of the things here is... If you're the manager, you will be somewhere on this curve of your team that may be totally different end of the curve to where your team are, and that will then cause a bit of miscommunication or misunderstandings when you're somewhere they're not and they can't see you and you can't see them. And, of course, there's there's going to be different factors that will play into that. So as a manager, you may have access to more information, more of the vision, than your team do yeah. and and you've got to be careful about assumption yeah uh, in that kind of yeah uh, and obviously the other part is just you might have a more positive me- mindset you might have a more negative mindset yeah. than your team as well so as a leader how do you recognize if you're in a different space to your team and how do you stop those dangerous assumptions that everyone's on the same page as you uh, and good question that really is at the crux of change management isn't it for me It's about listening and engaging. So it's about understanding where they are on the curve, why they're where they're at on the curve. So what are the influences on them? And it's almost putting your ego to one side and forgetting about you and making them the focus. Uh, Hence why my book is putting the eye into change. 
because organizations don't change, people do. And to change the organization, you have to potentially change one person at a time. And that allows you to move forward. So there will be group consensus and there will be personal differences within that. So it's recognizing, it's also having those open discussions around how they feel, potentially how you feel and why. Okay, so we're we're on a downward slope. Are we bottoming out yet? Are we, we starting to see the light at the end of the tunnel? Or, we are. If I'm not mixing my metaphors too much. No, that's right. <laughs> so yeah. where do we go next? Where do we go next? Well, there's a little thing just as we're going down around anger. And potentially there's a lot of anger generated during the downward slope if it's quite steep. Initially, that anger tends to be focused outwards at at the idiots for forcing you to change who should have known better. But as you go more down, you start internalizing that anger and it becomes directed at yourself around I should have been better than that I'm a good person I can do I've been and so you start then internalizing that anger that leads into or effectively helps you move through that guilt into a confusion stage so I know I've done wrong in the past I know what I was doing wasn't right um, but what do I do how do I get out of this and that's really the the bottom that's the, the pit of the trough of despondency that confusion area, I don't know where to go, who can help me, how can I get there, that leads into that insight, that leads into that decision on what to do. And there's a couple of decisions we can make there. One of the decisions is to start trying, attempting little bits, the classic, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? So we then start moving forwards and integrating it and making it work from us. I love the trough of despondency. Uh, as a Charlton fan, I'm sure I've been there a lot of times. <laughs> yeah, uh, I've got yeah, I've got a regular a season ticket to the trough of de- despondency. Um, as a leader, again, uh, when people are going through this and they're reaching that stage of anger and confusion, it, it's not they're not necessarily going to be coming into the office and ranting at you particularly if they work from home, I guess. <laughs> but they, they, they may disconnect in other ways. Um, yeah. So what signs are you looking for that shows you where they are on this journey and yeah. how do you respond? Yeah, uh, good question. I, I suppose you're looking in some ways for some of the classic red flag signs, so changes in their personality, changes in what they do. Some people go dark and just stop communicating out. Other people suddenly start communicating more, asking more questions, being more needy. So you're looking for a change in how they were to how they are now that then will help you decide what to do. So for the ones who go dark, it's making more effort to engage, talk to, and again, the assumptions, because you might say, well, they're an extrovert, so I don't need to to talk to them well wrong you'd need to talk even more to them because potentially the extroverts will reach out the introverts won't so it's about understanding how they normally act and looking for those differences it's about their work as well sometimes work ethic will go one way or the other again as they try to 
to find a way through it. It's about quality of work as well uh, and about motivation or apathy. So how are they turning up? Absenteeism uh, is a classic example that something's not right. Uh, And it's being aware enough to recognize those things. Create a greater impact as a mentor. Discover how to find the right person to mentor you and make sure that mentoring thrives in your organization with the Financial Times Guide to Mentoring. Andy Lapata and Dr. Ruth Gotian's new book comes out in May and is available to pre-order now. One of the, the things that jumps out for me, if we look at some of the emotions that we've talked about here, anxiety, fear, threat, guilt, anger, confusion, apathy. If you as a leader want to have strong relationships with the people you lead, probably the most important component of that is trust. And I would imagine that all of these negative emotions impact trust. If you want to be able to have an honest conversation with someone who is in the trough of despondency, they need to trust you enough to open up. But they're less likely to when they're in that space than they are when they're in a positive space. So how do you create it's become a bit of a new cliche for the 2020s, but how do you create that safe space uh, for them to feel that they can trust you and open up and speak when they're probably in an emotional state where they're least inclined to do so? Yeah, uh, and um, trust is fundamental. Trust is what will make this go so shallow, as you alluded to earlier, or so steep. And it's a double-edged trust. It's trusting you as the individual, my leader, but it's also trusting the organization. And as we know, and as you know really well, the two are fundamentally different. People join organizations and leave leaders. So there's that personal trust as well as organizational trust. And it's again about having the open, honest conversation. It's about coaching. It's about maybe bringing in external coaches to help people through that journey. And a massive multinational organization I supported when COVID hit and they sent all of their call center workers home to work from home, they drafted in a few people like me to coach and to support some of the people who suddenly had their whole social network taken away from them because they lived on their own, isolated in a block of flats, etc., and were suddenly there 24-7 rather than having those friendships. So we were brought in. So sometimes it's that. It's about your past history as well, because if you've behaved in a way that isn't trustworthy or that's broken that trust, You'll never get the trust back by talking. You only get the trust back by doing and behaving in a way that generates it. So right at the start of this, and as you alluded to, that initial communication, that needs to set the trust, that needs to set the framework and establish that relationship that allows them to come to you and you allow them to vent. Uh, As we all know from customer service work, you can't talk to somebody until they finish venting and they've got to get it off their chest before you can even engage in a conversation. So that's all part of those initial stages. And that, for me, is the engagement and allowing them to be part of the 
um, and, and and we'll revisit this idea of bringing in external coaches, which we we haven't really talked about a lot on on the podcast. It, it makes perfect sense, and in fact, it's something I asked about uh, earlier in our conversation. What really interests me at this point is where the line is, because a good leader won't will will delegate responsibility to coaches, but they won't abrogate responsibility. Hmm. I could see that being a danger. And if you're trying to build a trust and you want to show that you as a leader in, are invested in how people go on that change journey, then you can't just abrogate responsibility for those conversations. Yeah. So how do you get that balance right? And in some ways, and this depends now on the personal relationship we've got with the individuals, if you have a working relationship but not a deeply trustful relationship, then you need to abrogate that responsibility because you might be part of the problem, not the solution. So it is a bit of a Damocles sword there in that sometimes you have to abrogate and you've just got to leave it to the coach who is independent, can act as that sounding board and can give unbiased advice because you're not unbiased and as soon as you start dabbling and checking with the coach how's it going what did they say you immediately ruin the relationship or make it even worse you can check up with maybe your team member and ask them how they're finding it what's working from it but that's then in that gentle, non-pushy type of way that allows them to tell you as much as they want to tell you. So it's a real interesting double-edged sword, that one. And I, extending that as well, I, I, I guess that you could use your Fisher curve for change just in terms of a change in relationship between yeah. a leader and team. If, if a leader has... A, an amazing conversion and suddenly sees the light and wants to change their leadership style, then people don't just say, oh, they changed their leadership style. They're now interested. They become cynical. Yeah. They think totally. oh, uncertainty, fear, threat, guilt, anger, confusion. Yeah. And then eventually they come around, but the, the skepticism weighs in. So it's a similar curve. Yeah, very for much even so. that individual relationship. Okay, let's let's start sort of cl- scrabbling out of the trough of despondency. How do we start to pull our way out of that? What does that look like? Well, there's the sort of uh, three ways out of that that, that are um, two of them definitely less healthy ways out of that. One of them may or may not be less healthy. So the two unhealthy ways are separated only by energy. So on a very non-energetic, I'm not going to do anything, we have denial, sticking our head in the sand, ignoring the change and just waiting for it to go away. At the opposite end of that spectrum, we've got what I've called hostility, which is where I am expanding a lot of energy to force you to realize you're wrong. I'm keeping doing things in the old way. I'm ignoring the new processes. I'm causing more problems either because I'm arguing back. I'm sort of most negative. I'm sabotaging, but I'm just not buying into the new changes and still insisting on doing things as they used to be done. And then the positive uh, way? The positive way is, I called it disillusionment, partly because I think that's a better title than sod it, I'm off. 
but that's where we potentially recognize that this is not a change that sits comfortably with who I am, what I am, uh, and I'm not going to compromise by my values uh, to fit into your mold. So I go either mentally go uh, and just stop work to rule absenteeism etc or I physically go and leave the organization hence why it's potentially unhealthy or potentially healthy so if I'm leaving for the right reasons and I'm not prepared to compromise then that's the healthy answer if I stay but I leave mentally then that's unhealthy for everybody concerned and, and it is um, the case that sometimes change genuinely isn't for everyone mm. uh, and it's better for all parties and mm. it's not necessarily a negative thing if people go off and find a new opportunity elsewhere. Yeah, I've been in situations where I've been effectively asked to lie to my team and not be truthful with them. And the scales of this, as you've alluded to a couple of times, and if I know more than you, but I can't tell you, what I should never do there is just lie and either say I don't know because they know you do. And this has happened to me in I've been asked what's going on when I knew major change was coming uh, and I knew the impact and implications. And I was asked a question in front of a lot of people. So what's happening with this change, both internal organization and external? And I decided to be honest, but the honesty was, I know what's happening. I think it's personally really, really exciting. It's going to be a big difference, but everything's so fluid at the moment that where we are now may not be where we are tomorrow. So all I can say is I think the change is positive. It's going to be really helpful. But unfortunately, for a lot of sensitive issues, I can't tell you. And talking to them afterwards, that they were happy with that and felt comfortable because somebody in my position had... I'd sort of put my arm round them and said, don't worry too much, we'll make sure it works out for you. And that's where you can be honest rather than I don't know nothing, you'll be all right. And just leaving it as glibly as that creates the problems that then people will leave. Yeah, it is a difficult situation. I remember before I delivered my first talk on vulnerable leadership, I was talking to a business uh, leader who had mm. been in a very difficult situation where the business was losing money rapidly. There was a lot of uncertainty about the business. And he said, you know, I couldn't talk to the team about what was going on. It was highly confidential, highly sensitive, and I had to wear a mask. We were talking about whether you're being inauthentic when you wear a mm. mask, if, you know, good leadership means removing that mask and just being vulnerable all the time. And he was saying, actually, there's times where I had to wear a mask because mm. they needed that certainty. They needed some reassurance. And even if, honestly, I couldn't give it to them, I couldn't say anything else. So I needed to, to be positive in that space. So yeah. I think it is scenario dependent, but there are times where, yeah, you don't want to lie, but you can't tell the whole truth. And you have yeah. to manage that effectively. And that's where then judgment comes in. And that's where trust comes in. And if you've got already a level of trust, then it's far easier to be able to say, I can't tell you for a few different reasons. All I can say is what you can tell them uh, and give them that sort of heads up 
in those ways. If you haven't got that level of trust, then it's always going to be difficult. It's like a couple of companies I've been in, they brought effectively hatchet people in to come and start shedding jobs. And usually the last job that gets made redundant is theirs. Uh, And it's the Winston Churchill syndrome in Britain. As soon as the war ended, he was voted out because you need somebody who can fight for peace. You don't want to fight for war in there. So you need to move on the person who's cut all the jobs and led that change because their credibility is that they're getting rid and nobody will trust them. It's interesting. When you talk about it, it depends on the level of trust that you've built up. Uh, For my book, Just Ask, and I'm trying to remember if he's been on the podcast as well, but I interviewed a guy called Phil Gardner, and Phil was the director of sales at Thomas Cook when Thomas Cook went bust. And he was the one, he had to tell 200 members of his team Mm. that all bar a small handful of them had no job, Mm. you know, from Mm. that day, on the day it all happened. And he actually said the the trust and the relationships that he'd built with his team before that enabled him to do so in a way that they listened and they engaged and they knew where he was coming from. Yeah. And that they didn't push him in the days before that where they knew things were going on. It was, it was all over the newspapers yeah. here and, and all over the news. But they respected what he could and couldn't tell them because they knew he had their interests at heart. And that's where vulnerable leadership is so empowering in that aspect because if you've shared your vulnerability your nervousness if you share how you're feeling because they'll be assuming that you're feeling the same as them whether it's positive or negative about the change so if you share how you're feeling it can then give people comfort and even if you're sharing a negative that you're worried you're not sure how it's going to work out that gives them a a feeling of comfort because they realize they're not alone. And one of the big problems in change is that we always think it's only us that's feeling like that if we don't have that open communication. Yeah, Phil um, shared a a very touching moment with me where he said that at lunchtime, after a morning of making these redundancies and still more to come, at one point he was in the canteen and in the queue a junior member of his team turned around to him and and asked him how he was feeling Mm. and he had to go off to the loo and cry yeah um because no one had asked him how he was yeah and uh yeah it was it was a very uh touching moment yeah definitely and yeah i filled up then as you saw (laughs) um on that yeah it, it is and it's a mark of the trust that he built up with the team that allowed them to get through the change while unhappily in a more healthy way. Yeah. Right. I'm I'm aware of where we are time-wise and where we are on the curve. So let's push towards the brighter horizon. So we've gone through that stage where we're not really engaging with the change, but we're starting to grudgingly accept it. How do we then get people on board with the change? Where do they go from there? Yeah, the only way is upwards, to quote the song, by supporting them, by giving them a little bit more um, information, a little bit more freedom, by encouraging them to track 
practice to try to test it for size, but also to make it fit. And by allowing them to make mistakes, to fail, uh, we can then start supporting them through that by encouraging open conversation. Back when I, I used to be in the Royal Air Force as a, a radar engineer and the Air Force magazine used to have something for the aircrew to write in about near misses anonymously. And it, it was called, I learned from that. And they shared their mistakes so other people didn't make them. And sometimes it's part of that, having those regular touch points where you allow people just to say, what did they do? How did they get round that? Because people will find their own ways, like water. It will, they will all find their own way to the solution that some people will never have thought of. So it's helping people be open to campfire talks that became popular uh, going back a few years ago, just around sharing what we've learned, how we've done it, and giving them that sense of ownership and control. Because one of the problems during change, especially in the early stages, is we may feel a total loss of control and not sure how to get it back. So by giving them that control, that support, that coaching and empowerment, we can help them make it work and achieve great heights. So you, you've struck on another regular theme of the podcast, which is uh, a willingness to talk about failure and learn from failure. I talked about fail fests in Just Ask, and we've talked about that on the podcast. Mm. Jennifer Fondreve, I, I think it was one of my guests who talked about pre-mortems. You know, mm. we talked about fail fests and post-mortems, mm. but actually having a pre-mortem. So even before the change, say what could go wrong and how will we yeah, respond to it as well. So yeah. the, the upward curve is very much a, a, a stages of questioning, of inquiry uh, and interrogation to yeah. bring everyone on board. Maybe not as a gentle form of interrogation. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And I totally agree with your um, previous one of your other guests in part of your preparation for change is you've got to create that closure of the past as well as a recognition that you've got to change. So your change plan has to include what do you do before the change starts, how do you communicate, who do you communicate with and to, and the reasons for those communications. So no change should start until after everybody's bought in or been allowed to have a voice on that change and be party to having their concerns addressed so i think it's fundamental i like the idea of pre-mortem yeah. and i think it's fundamental so we're now in a much more positive place on on the curve we've coming through people are accepting the change now and moving forward with it what does the curve say to us about embedding change because yeah me, um, you need to have that in there you, you do need to have that in there and the change sort of assumes that we've embedded it on the upward slope and that's how we embed it and integrate it. And somebody emailed me maybe 15 years ago now to say, I think, John, there's a stage that's the linkage between the first stage and the last stage that I call complacency. And that's where things are normal. We're doing what we know we're doing. We're in our comfort zone. Everything's going swimmingly until the next 
change uh, and change is constant uh, and i think that's sort of part and parcel of it i've not formally integrated it because i'm still not quite sure where and how it fits in for me so i talk about it but i don't include it formally and I think it's also fair to say that we're going through multiple of these change curves all the time in our lives. Coming on your podcast is one for both of us in I'm a new guest for you. So it's how will I be? How will the reaction be? What will that be like? You're a new interviewer for me. So it's what will this be like? How will it work? What will happen? And so we're going through that at various levels and various depths on a daily basis. And we've got myriads of these running on everything. I think that's a really good point because we talk about, you know, the macro changes, if you like. I've used macro examples throughout mm. in my questions. But there's daily micro changes that can impact how we feel in a moment, mm. uh, how we feel about tomorrow, mm. how we sleep tonight, yeah. uh, all, all of those types of things that are going and on all the time. In the modern world, of course, will Amazon come before I've finished or yeah. will my <laughs> delivery come? So if we know it, and I, I've been in similar positions where I've had it will arrive between two and three, and I'm thinking, I hope it arrives nearer three than two because, <laughs> and we go through that, that also adds that, how will I quote, what will I do within that? So it does happen at the macro and the micro levels. Absolutely. Well, change, as you say, is constant. And I think that's something that it, it is more and more apparent these days. So many of the, the organizations I've worked with and I talk to, constantly in a state of uncertainty constantly yeah. in a state of restructuring so this approach this outlook the, the this constructivist approach of well what are people experiencing going through this and trying to understand that and, and bringing people along that journey with you is so important and i've really taken the leader to team perspective but it's colleague to colleague it's uh mm -hmm. um uh organization to supplier organization to client it, it, there are so many relationships yeah. uh, that we're involved with that are impacted by change yeah uh, and this fits with all of them doesn't it well it, for me i think it was epictus you can't put your foot in the same river twice uh the river's changed you've changed your foot's wetter colder whatever it might be warmer not in the north of england and there's so constant change and we are changed by that change. And quantum physics have proved a, a long while ago that the mere act of observing something changes it uh, in that way. So it's one of those we're constantly going through. And I think that's one of the big differences from a constructivist approach to most other approaches. Most other approaches, the change agent tells you what they think a constructivist change agent asks you what you think and they look at it from your perspective, not getting you to see their perspective. Which I think is where we started out is a very healthy place to mm. be and, and to look at it from. We're in danger of becoming the philosophical leadership podcast, which <laughs> I think could be a very a, a fascinating one in its own right. Maybe I'll, I'll have to branch off into that as well. But for the moment, John, thank you for your insights. I found it really interesting. It is important when we're going through all types of changes to 
really understand where everyone is at with it because that impacts the success of any change. And the, the journey through the curve that you've shared today helps us to do that. So thank you very much for joining me on the Connected Leadership Podcast. And thank you very much for having me, Andy. I've thoroughly enjoyed it. It's been good fun. My pleasure, John. Thank you. So as I promised at the beginning, we will make sure that the curve is either in the show notes or it will accompany uh, my social media posts about this episode so that you can view it as well as listen to it. But hopefully you're able to follow that journey as we talk through it. Uh, and, And it was a really interesting insight. Yeah, there will be different journeys, different people will be on. Some will have flatter or shorter curves than others. But I can see how this would have helped in so many scenarios over the course of my career if I'd have taken that approach of understanding what my colleagues, uh, what my peers, what other people were going through and respond to that rather than responding to my frustration at how they were acting. And this is where this is so important. So I hope that you've found this uh, interesting. If you have, please share it. Please help others to embrace change in a different way as well. And whatever you do, one thing doesn't change, and that is that the Connected Leadership Podcast will be in your inbox next Monday. So join us again for another episode. Thank you for listening to the Connected Leadership Podcast. If you found this valuable, please subscribe, tell your colleagues and friends, share on social media, and post a review on the podcast channel you use to listen to it. And of course, join us again soon for another interesting interview and great Connected Leadership tips.